Hi, everyone. It's Mo Bandari from Orthopod. Uh, I am the Editor-in-Chief of Ortho Evidence, and I'm here again with uh, Dr. Zane Chagla. You may know him from uh, some previous podcasts, and I urge you to take a look at some of those. He's an Associate Professor in the Division of Infectious Diseases in the Department of Medicine at McMaster University. Welcome this evening, Zane. Hey, thanks for having me. Um, let me just give a preamble, and then I might just let you speak um, and give us some insights <laughs> to our, our members. We're about what, 56 million cases worldwide. I'm kind of reading this evening about 1.3 million deaths. Canada's about 310,000 cases. And if we look specifically at the two provinces that are uh, most hit, you know, uh, Ontario and Quebec. Ontario, for example, has seen, you know, I think what, it's a week or so of cases well above 1,400 cases a day. There are all kinds of questions out there. And I think the big ones are, you know, when, when, might, when might we see sort of this end of a second peak? When might um, we see a vaccine that's going to be accessible around the world, but particularly for Canadians? And, you know, any insights you might have on what the ensuing weeks in Canada might look like for those of us who are represented here in this uh, country? Yeah, so thanks for that. I mean, I, I think, you know, it's interesting. We did this podcast many months ago and this was at the beginning of our first wave and, and went into a summertime where we were protected by a number of things that protect us normally against respiratory viruses. The fact that we don't congregate as much, the fact that we're outdoors more, the fact that yet yeah, we, we tend to be kind of more dispersed in the summertime. Um, but unfortunately the winter time is where our respiratory viruses come back because of the opposites of those behaviors. And we're starting to see that now. We've seen rates essentially in most jurisdictions around the world outside of Australia and New Zealand spike up um, and Southeast Asia spike up. And, uh, and you know, certainly places in Europe that have had to institute a full out lockdown to try to get their rates under control, healthcare utilization getting out of, out of control in, in some spots in Europe. Uh, we also have the reality of our neighbor to the South essentially taking very little in terms of mitigation measures, uh, some states doing a bit better than others, but a, an, an uncoordinated national response uh, where the burden of disease is just growing and growing and growing. In some states, you know, 50% of people showing up to an assessment center uh, that are testing positive. And then you're seeing, um, you know, the same thing happening in Canada. And, and so the two hardest hit provinces, Ontario and Quebec, which were uh, part of the first wave, particularly in the urban density regions, but also in the long-term care sectors, fairly hit profoundly, uh, which have seen uh, cases rise and, and societal restrictions over the last couple of months to compensate, particularly in the areas where things have been uh, out of control in, in Ontario and the greater Toronto area, Peel, uh, York Region, Durham, Halton, and, and at some point Ottawa and in Quebec, Montreal and Quebec City. But interestingly, you're starting to see the disease explode in settings that really didn't get hit hard in the first wave. So uh, Manitoba, uh, which you know essentially had to institute a full lockdown over the last few weeks uh, as their healthcare utilization essentially failed. Uh, and, and knowing that is a population in Winnipeg, uh, that is 10% Indigenous and, and has a number of risk factors for significant issues. Um, you're seeing rates rise in Saskatchewan, you're seeing rates again get to the point of critical healthcare utilization in Alberta, 
and even British Columbia and the greater Vancouver area and in Fraser region uh, having a significant amount of cases. And so these areas which actually came out fairly quickly um, and, uh, and things actually improved over the summertime and had relatively low rates are now actually seeing more growth than the traditional hotspots in Ontario and Quebec. And so you're seeing society now responding to this. You know, I think we've all learned how to use universal masks, mitigate risk, get tested. Um, but I think, you know, given that we are trying to do so many things in, in such complication, get, getting kids back to school, getting most people back to workplaces, uh, having most businesses open other than certain high risk industries, um, you know, from a healthcare standpoint, being able to perform all the surgeries we missed, as well as being able to provide routine care as appropriately as possible, you have the second wave where you have all these balanced priorities. You have a population that, uh, although they're buying in, is getting fatigued and understands this is very different than wave one where their personal risk, uh, uh, you know, in wave one, everyone had a personal risk thinking they were going to end up in a ventilator. And in wave two, we're realizing, and obviously the data has come out that, uh, this is a disease that really strikes those that are much older and have cardiac risk factors. You know, so now you lose the personal risk. Uh, you have buy-in issues, and then you have yeah, and you you have other situations, social determinants of health that are just exposing themselves in a sense. From a hospital standpoint, it's also very difficult as again we're trying to run all these services. Um, you know, we we have to maintain some capacity to deal with COVID patients in the community. We have PPE challenges in certain places. Uh, we can't do this typical things like hallway medicine just because of the infection control risks. And we have to, again, deal with everything that's going on, a flu season, pneumonia, and, and help with managing some of these is issues in congregate care settings. And congregate care settings across the country are getting hit hard. We're hearing stories essentially throughout, the, throughout Ontario, some fairly horrific stories in Manitoba about congregate care settings that have essentially been entirely replaced by COVID cases with a significant mortality. And so the next few weeks moving forward are gonna be quite difficult. Uh, I think we're gonna be seeing much more restrictions and even in the coming one to two weeks uh, with uh, more forward facing industries being told to close, um, hopefully sparing things like schools and childcare, which have a, a face and a place in society uh, that are uh, uh, significant for the development of our children. Uh, and, uh, and again, you may see more and more and more clamped down until the end is near. From a treatment standpoint, I think we, we are learning an interesting lesson that the mortality has gone down between the first wave and the second wave. It's still unclear what exactly has led to this. There are a few theories. Uh, in the first wave, we had uh, a lot of issues with um, ventilation and particularly not putting people on non-invasive ventilation or high flow oxygen, thinking that they were aerosol generating, um, which is true. Uh, and so early intubation, but as we realized, those, those modalities can be managed very easily with the, the appropriate personal protective equipment. And so many of the people that we ventilated early are now dealing with uh, non-invasive ventilation, uh, high flow oxygen and getting through their disease. Number two is we have a, a randomized clinical trial from the UK, the recovery trial, which shows a significant benefit to giving dexamethasone for those who are hospitalized on oxygen uh, and even more of a benefit who of those who need mechanical ventilation, which has certainly changed it. 
And I think number three, in the first wave, we were throwing random therapies at people and hoping one would stick. We now have, you know, evidence-based guidelines. We have healthcare utilization right now that's able to deal with these patients without necessarily making uh, ethical decisions. Uh, and again, we have a streamed pathway of what drug is appropriate rather than giving 10 drugs that were inappropriate to that patient over and over. Um, from, uh, 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 finally, from a vaccine standpoint, uh, I think we're starting to see a light at the end of the tunnel. The last three weeks have been exciting, although all by press release, there are two mRNA candidate vaccines using a model which essentially injects mRNA into the human host, uh, uses human um, ribosomal machinery to then uh, transcribe spike protein, which is on the outer surface of coronavirus, and then elicit immune response. This is a uh, uh, platform that's never been used for human vaccination before, but has been our kind of pandemic in a, a box vaccine strategy. Um, and so you're seeing uh, that bear out between Pfizer and Moderna, both trials seeing about 95% efficacy in real world uh, clinical trials, some of these involving fairly elderly patients, uh, such that, you know, I, I think we're, we're starting to see some significant effects of what a vaccine can do here and much more than what the government's expectation were for a vaccine of 50% efficacy. Uh, we're also seeing in some small signals a reduction in disease severity in the people that do get the vaccine over those who get placebo, which again, you know, makes it even more strong a case that a max, mass vaccination campaign may not eliminate this disease from the face of the earth, but make it a very dealable pathogen moving forward. Uh, many people are asking when the vaccine will come, and uh, uh, I, I am seeing prospective signs today. Pfizer released uh, that they reached a 162 patient threshold to essentially start applying to the FDA for emergency use authorization. I believe Health Canada is going to approve the same thing. Um, from many sources, uh, from the Canadian government and the Ontario government, it sounds like the vaccine will be showing up in Canada as early as January. Uh, and uh, uh, with the number of doses ordered in the Canadian context, about uh, 20 million of the Pfizer vaccine and 56 million of the Moderna vaccine, we are going to likely see most Canadians vaccinated over the course of 2021, starting with a prioritization framework that was derived from the federal government, focusing on long-term care and congregate care settings and, and, uh, and those who are vulnerable, their healthcare providers, other frontline healthcare providers that are taking care of COVID patients, and then moving on to more forward-facing professions like you know, other physicians, police officers, nurses, um, uh, um, teachers, and, and that context, and, and hopefully moving out to the general population after that. And I think even in that first three months, if you get most of the long-term care sector and their workers vaccinated, and most of the healthcare workers that are dealing with COVID patients vaccinated, I think you've eliminated a significant amount of the risk of death of the population. You certainly haven't eliminated the healthcare utilization standpoint, but you probably have eliminated some of the big challenges we've seen in managing this outbreak as it's gone forward. Uh, and then as the strategy moves forward and forward and forward, hopefully by the end or mid 2021, where you get most of your vulnerable sectors and healthcare workers hit, that you're, you're starting to see the, the calm of this being a manageable disease uh, where the hospitalization rate is low and the death rate is even lower. So uh, there is a future, there is a light at the end of the tunnel, having two platforms that are available 
uh, and sound like they'll be licensed soon is really, really impressive. There is another vaccine based on uh, the adenovirus vector model by Oxford and AstraZeneca, which is also being uh, hopefully released in the next couple of weeks, which has a better cold chain requirement is a single injection, which also may change the game too. And even from a global health standpoint, some of these vaccines uh, uh, will be hopefully uh, administered and Canadian government has been instrumental in giving to the COVAX network, which is um, a vaccine network to provide low and middle income countries access to these vaccinations going forward. So certainly we're seeing a bit of pain, um, a bit of a, a tough situation now and probably a little bit more restriction in the few, next few weeks, given that the rates are starting to go out of control as per a respiratory virus and healthcare utilization is getting out of control. Um, but again, hopefully a light at the end of the tunnel by even quarter one of 2021, where we have vaccine doses kind of in the most vulnerable people, we might start slowly breathing a sigh of relief and moving forward with a strategy to open things back up again fully. Hugely uh, thankful for that. That's, that's extremely a helpful update. Covers it all. I don't have to ask you much, but Zane, let me ask you <laughs> two very quick questions before we close out here. Yeah. The first is, um, in vaccines, the assumption would be that, um, you know, you've got enough cases, you've got enough vaccines that, that could vaccinate the population. That doesn't factor in, there's a very surprisingly large group of anti-vaxxer individuals who, for a variety of reasons, hold beliefs that vaccines are mm. not the solution. Um, you know, I'm sure these, you know, uh, I guess you don't need everyone to be vaccinated, but I guess, is there any consideration to this concept? I mean, when you're when you're interacting, there must be a group resistant to vaccines as a whole. And if there's a large enough group, what's the impact of that? Like, would they mandate it as a government to say you must have this? Yeah, I mean, it's a good question. Again, the herd immunity strategy is, is populated on the fact that most people are immune. And so a number, you know, a critical mass of people have to be vaccinated to prevent, protect the uh, the most elderly and vulnerable. Knowing this vaccine is 95% efficacy and relatively healthy, people of all ages, we know when we start putting it out in real world practice, the efficacy is probably going to go down a little bit. So that herd effect is going to be even more important. Uh, you have probably a group of people that are just very hesitant to see what a new vaccine does in the population. I think that's reasonable. I mean, that's human nature. I don't want to be the guinea pig of this. Um, and so maybe they're going to be the ones that are going to wait the six months to see, okay, what the population does. And you do have a group that's always going to be vaccine hesitant. I think the other part of this is because this is a, a such tied to being normal again. So things like travel, things like you know, um, certain workplaces, working, being in a hospital, if, you know, without infringing on people's rights too much, you know, some of these semi-elective things that are actually part of normal society, being in school, if you mandate vaccination as part of that, I think you'll have to get as, you'll get more uptake as part of it. So yes, you can sit in Hamilton uh, in your home, not send your children to school and not be vaccinated. If you want to get on a plane, you have to show proof of vaccination. If you want to send your kids to school, you have to show proof of vaccination. And I think that is probably going to be the strategy moving forward, positively encouraging the population, but saying to people, you know, the, the, the ticket to entry back into society, as long as this is a safe vaccine in mass quantities, is going to be getting vaccinated. Otherwise, you're going to be able to survive in society, but you're not going to be able to do much with it. And one final question before we close out. 
you, you've alluded a few times that, you know, first quarter is when we're going to start seeing vaccine and we're going to start seeing re reopening because of we have, you know, probably a larger population of individuals being vaccinated. Do you think by next summer or later that it's going to be ever pre-COVID sort of society or is has that changed us now? I mean, even I, when we're vaccinated. Yeah, I mean, I think so. I, it's funny because I think, you know, there's there's two facets. There's people that are extremely careful and there are other people that that are probably going to be over aggressively happy to get back into society, right? And, you know, it's, it's ironic. I, I was looking at when the Pfizer news came out, the biggest stock that went up wasn't Pfizer. It was Carnival Cruises because people just knew that cruise lines now just had a new life and everyone who is wanting to go on their cruises are going to start booking them soon, right? So I think it's it's that. I, I think there is going to be a component of society that's going to shy away and, and wait for everyone else to engage. Um, you know, as we know, this is an infection that in those between 20 and 50 don't cause a lot of long-term stigma, don't cause a lot of long-term damage, not to say that it doesn't happen, but it's not common, you know, that subsection, when they're going to feel like they're immune, they're not going to necessarily contribute to spread in society. I think they're going to engage in society trying to make up for the lost year they had. Um, you may see some older members and vulnerable members still kind of sheltering at home and being very careful, but I think you have a lot of people that are waiting in line to get out and, and hopefully this is the ticket out by, you know, quarter three, quarter four of 2021. Got it. On that note, thank you very much, uh, Dr. Chaklazane, uh, for spending a little bit of time with us at Ortho Evidence to give our membership an update. Have a wonderful evening.